Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. such a privilege to be here as a 2016 Fellow of the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. I've been invited to Australia to speak about uh, cultural diplomacy, soft power, and people-to-people diplomacy, and I'm going to weave that into my remarks about the Middle East, uh, but that, of course, is something that the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue represents um, to a fantastic degree. It's a people-to-people uh, meeting that has been taking place now for, it's going to celebrate its 25th anniversary next year, bipartisan, bringing together leaders in all different sectors of society for annual meetings. And a lot of friendships and a lot of alliances have been forged there. I'm going to um, just take you through a few key developments that have taken place during the Obama presidency. I think things that he could, none of us really could ever have predicted the incredibly dramatic, traumatic changes that have taken place in the Middle East during this time period. And then I'm going to suggest some implications. I'm going to first focus on um, North Africa, and then I'm going to let my colleague talk about uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and then maybe we can then come back to Syria, because it's a lot to handle, and I don't want to drone on and on. And I want to welcome your questions, um, particularly bringing in the Australian perspective, which will be very interesting for me to hear. So let's go back to 2009. Do you remember President Obama's Cairo speech? Uh, He went uh, to Cairo and gave this very moving, very eloquent speech uh, first, you know, opening the door, opening his arm, saying we want to build a new relationship, and also, you know, speaking in fairly strong terms uh, about his support for the people of Egypt and the Middle East, and his hope that the leaders in Egypt, in particular, in the Middle East, in in general would make it possible, I I might even say more possible, for the people uh, of the Middle East to be able to lead lives of dignity and purpose and freedom. It was very inspiring and people talked about a new period potentially in US relations with the Middle East. Very unfortunately, uh, there was no concrete follow-up to this speech, um, and actually no funding put behind it at all. Uh, The most significant follow-up that I'm aware of took place in the library in Alexandria, Egypt. And that was a conference organized by Ismail Sarek Eldin specifically to follow up in the key areas of culture, 
and science and technology and civil society on the very ideas suggested by President Obama. Uh, it was a large international conference, and I, I have to confess to you, absolutely inexplicably, it was not even supported by the US Embassy in Cairo. At the same time as that conference was held, it was held in June 2010, there were beginning to be protests in Alexandria every Friday at noon. They had just taken place, I think, for about a month. And they were protesting the recent murder of Khaled Saeed, a young man who had been simply working in a cyber cafe on his computer. And in broad daylight, he was pulled out of the cafe, beaten to death, and left on the steps of the cafe. And this was uh, videotaped, it was done by Egyptian security. And that was the beginning of the Egyptian revolution. Because another young Egyptian man in, the U in Dubai named Wael Ghanim set up a Facebook page that said, we are all Khaled Said. And the power of social media in the Egyptian revolution has been given a lot of credit, and I think it's important. Uh, and this was the first very key instance. But I also want to emphasize that the Egyptian revolution, as was true for Tun Tunisia and Syria, is about people. It's about people putting themselves on the line. But this initial Facebook posting was very important because he had this, fa this page, we are all Khaled Said and 300,000 people signed up for it. And that was a first manifestation of how strong and how widespread this feeling was of injustice perpetrated by, in effect, the Egyptian government. Well then, uh, fast forward, you had the Tunisian revolution that began in December 2010, precipitated by you know, decades of injustice, but the individual event of uh, the young man who said, uh, uh, Mohammed Bouazizi, who set himself on fire just out of frustration for another uh, kind of petty request for a bribe to be able to simply sell his goods and his cart. Um, and that led, of course, the Egyptians, people of great pride. I think there were many, many factors, but among this, what, Tunisia first? What is that? Uh, and uh, a month later, you had the beginning of the Egyptian revolution. Again, none of this was like a big master plan. It was just one of those things that simmering uh, issues in society. And remember the words that were used by the people in the street. Uh, it wasn't democracy, representation. It was dignity and social justice. Very basic things. I want to be able to earn a living for my family. I want to be able to advance on the basis of my own talents and merits and not have to bribe someone and not be surpassed by someone who's the son of an official or the daughter of an official. Basic issues of social justice. And there were then the heady 18 days um, with millions, literally millions, filling Tahrir Square. 
And the US government, President Obama included very, I mean, who wasn't moved by that? Um, and President Obama eventually suggesting that it was time for Mubarak to go. And this was something that the uh, Supreme Council of Armed Forces, the Egyptian military, agreed with. Um, and so great celebrations, Mubarak does step down. And it wasn't really until I think, you know, maybe a year later that people realized that Mubarak actually was just put under the bus. But the people driving the bus were exactly the same people who'd always been running Egypt. Um, and that was the deep state, um, most visibly the Egyptian military. And I think, and then you had the election of Mohamed Morsi, uh, and you know I can talk in more detail about that, how it happened to be him who was elected. Um, huger demonstrations in the streets than ever, um, even than the 18 days, and Mohamed Morsi overthrown. But then again, here is this moment, and what happens? The military steps in again. Uh, and all through this time period, after you know, the initial support for the revolution, the United States policy has been to support whoever was in charge of Egypt. And that turned out to be uh, increasingly repressive authorities to the point of uh, President Sisi today who is much more repressive than even President Mubarak was, or President Morsi. Can I just, uh, can I just uh, maybe stop you there yeah. briefly, and maybe we can move on to Professor Cycle and go to, the, um, to what's happened in, say, um, uh, Syria. Well, not we'll, wherever you want to start, I suppose, but um, there have been big changes in a number of places in the Middle East and, and in Iran. So if you want to take up the story from there. Thank you very much, and it's wonderful to have Cynthia here and Tulsa, Mark, and <coughs> I think uh, under uh, or during President Obama's uh, presidency, um, one other critical development which taken place in the region is the division of the Persian Gulf, or as the Arab calls it, the Arab Gulf, between the northern port and southern port. The no this is another fault line which has come on the top of the geopolitical and sectarian fault lines that had caused the division between the two sides previously, or at least in historical times. So the north of the Gulf, and that of course, that is Iran, Iraq, uh, and in uh, uh, Syria, is uh, very much now under the influence of what one could possibly call a Moscow, Tehran, Baghdad, uh, Damascus, Hezbollah axis. And the southern part of the Gulf is uh, very much under the influence of um, uh, Saudi Arabia and its allies, backed by the United States and some, a number of its Western uh, allies. Um, this fault line that has occurred is very dangerous. It has a sign of permanency. And it definitely, as a result of a very uh, long and deep running rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Although the sectarian division between the two uh, countries have uh, been very much presented in terms of Sunni versus Shia, but it is 
uh, very much geopolitically driven. It is more in pursuit of regional influence in terms of security considerations of each state. And to, 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 to me, this is a development uh, which has complicated the situation in the region more than ever before. And uh, now, of course, uh, you've got two international alliances, one led by Russia, another one led by the United States, have come into the region with conflicting interests and conflicting agendas and supporting uh, uh, opposition forces in the, in the area. And that makes also a resolution of or a return to stability and security to the region. Uh, very, very complicated. Uh, to stabilize the region, uh, you really need to now have a consensus at three levels. And these consensus will have to be interlocking. One, it is at the national level, for example, at the Iraqi level, at the Syrian level, uh, and even Lebanese level. And then the other one is at the regional level. That is between the Islamic Republic of Iran, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and of course, the Republic of Turkey. And then at the international level, you have to have a consensus on the part of primarily the United States and Russia. And of course, the China could be really brought in to the whole thing. So this is a development which I think is going to be very critical in terms of shaping the future uh, of the region. And also, this is a development which could seriously really influence the direction that a possible resolution of some of the conflicts could really take in the area. If I could just uh, probe that a bit further, um, the US under President Obama has been criticised, President Obama has been strongly criticised for, at least by his conservative critics, uh, for being weak, for, for effectively withdrawing US influence from the Middle East, from stepping away from it. Uh, and uh, this has seen uh, Putin move in and the, the Russians particularly in exerting their interest in Syria. Um, but what, what do you think? Has that been... Uh, has that been a strategic mistake by the US, or is it in fact a recognition that, that, that the Obama administration has, which is that it's not going to get involved in things that don't uh, uh, directly threaten US interests? Um, and so as a result, Obama might be in fact uh, quietly quite relaxed about Putin re-establishing some pressure in and uh, some force in the, in the region, because that, that, that may give it the symmetry that it lacks um, without the US there in force. I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, the Obama administration inherited two bloody wars mm. in the region. And the United States was not winning either of them. I was very much uh, uh, bogged down in Afghanistan. And a Bush administration had made a very clear decision that you're going to pull out of Iraq uh, by 2011, by the end of 2011. And also, as you mentioned, I mean, the President Obama uh, came to power with a promise that he's not going to get United States involved in another uh, long and bloody war uh, in the Middle East. I think in that sense, although his hands have been really forced to uh, form an international coalition in order to act against uh, the so-called Islamic State, and uh, with the promise that he's not going to really send ground troops, but as a matter of fact, there's something like about six to 7,000 American forces on the ground so that the, they're on the ground, yeah, they're troops, but they're not ground troops. They're not ground troops, <laughs> but they are on the ground. And they have the right to, to defend themselves. And also they have the right to, to 
uh, go on preemptive strikes whenever absolutely necessary for defensive purposes. So we do actually have the American forces on the ground in Iraq, and also we've got American reconnaissance forces in Syria operating in different, uh, different parts. So in terms of really uh, fulfilling his promise that he's not going to get involved, uh, United States involved in another long war, well, it's just a sort of a, he has uh, achieved uh, his uh, objectives uh, halfway. It, it, it was very much, uh, Professor Schneider mentioned mm. the, uh, the, the speech in Cairo in 2008, mm. was it? Um, no. No, 2009. This was when he, he actually called on, I think he was speaking to Tehran when he said, unclench your fist mm. uh, in that speech. Uh, and um, th that, what you refer to as the, the legacy of those wars, the, the, the disaster in Afghanistan and the disaster in Iraq, are really the context that, dis yeah, you know, that defines the Obama administration's policy there. Uh, absolutely, but I think uh, one must not really forget that, that uh, even before he was elected, uh, during his campaign, and for the first time, he said that he would like to extend uh, a hand of friendship, uh, not only to the Muslim world, but more specifically to the Iranians. Uh, he even said about Cuba. Yeah, yeah he said about yeah. Cuba. I mean, in that sense, at least he's, uh, again, fulfilled uh, that uh, promise. I mean, I think uh, uh, the uh, July 2015 uh, nuclear agreement between uh, Iran and the world powers may well prove to be a crowning achievement of the Obama administration. Uh, of course, uh, still there are a lot of doubts whether the, um, the, that agreement is going to be fully implemented. Uh, both sides are accusing one another at this stage that really uh, violating, uh, if not uh, the letters, at least the spirit of that uh, agreement. Uh, but nonetheless, it is uh, uh, also clear that both sides uh, really uh, do want this agreement to work. Uh, for Obama, it's going to be an important legacy. And uh, for the Iranians, there will be an enormous economic gain, and uh, as well as a strategic gain. Uh, the Iranian economy is in a dire state, and the Iranian oil industry needs to be overhauled. Uh, it needs some billions and billions of dollars of investment. And the Iranians would like to really find the full access to the international market uh, for whatever they want to purchase and whatever they want to really export. And I think that is something which is recognized not only by the moderate government of President Rouhani, but also by the supreme leader and people around him. So obviously they do want, but then again, both the Obama administration and the Rouhani government have their detractors inside Iran and inside the United States, as well as in the region. Israel still remains totally opposed to any normalization of relations between Tehran and Washington. And Saudi Arabia has a lot of apprehension about that. In fact, there may be uh, it's something that uh, Riyadh and uh, Jerusalem now share in common is opposition to, uh, to, 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 uh, to Iran. And uh, I think ultimately probably the Iranians and the Americans will really ignore all these objections as they've done so far. But nonetheless, that's not really going to make uh, the task of either Rouhani or for that matter Obama for the next eight months are really that easy. And then of course it will depend who's going to succeed Obama it is, if it is uh, Donald uh, Ramp, uh, Trump. But I mean, you know, but, but I think that's going to be another issue altogether and perhaps uh, Professor Snyder could comment. Yes, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we have relatively limited time here so I, I want to sort of move this along a bit and I, I would like to get to that whole issue of uh, what is happening in the US at the moment and what are the implications of the foreign policy to the extent that it's been enunciated by either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in your view. I'm going to just make a, a quick comment before that and then okay. I'll, I'll come to that because I, I wouldn't disagree with one word um, that you have said, uh, I mean, but I'd like to 
uh, present a slightly different approach to the Middle East than that, and a different approach to what strategic interests are. Because you talk about the two powers, or the groups of powers, vying uh, for you know, domination in the Middle East, but you didn't actually mention the people who they're vying for domination over. And we're actually talking about, except for Iran, but I mean, we're talking about Syria, we're talking about Egypt, and other North African um, countries. So I am uh, going to suggest that for the United States, there's another perspective of strategic interest. You mentioned that we haven't won either of these wars. And then that wars just are not going to be won in the Middle East. They're going to be hopefully stopped. But the idea of wars being won, I think, is a pretty hopeless thing. So for the United States, which I think this is true under anyone running for president, you still want to be the leading power. You know, the idea of assisting Saudi Arabia to have Sunni domination over a region, I don't think that's a goal of anyone in office or aspiring to office. Um, so what makes sense in this world then when you don't win wars? What are, for the United States, its strategic interests? And I would suggest another perspective. This is an age of total global connectedness, of 24-7 communication, of citizen journalism. Everyone knows what's going on all the time. What has happened as a result of the United States backing successive dictators um, in Egypt is that the United States is now held in lower esteem in that country of 82 million people, and actually across Northern Africa, than it was in the era of George W. Bush. So what does the United States stand for? You have tens of millions of people who have tried to achieve for themselves lives not just like the United States, but with some of the rights that they see in the United States. And instead of seeing the United States as their banner, they see it as their enemy. They've been shot at in the streets by bullets made in the United States. And when the choice came to President Obama, do we continue to sell the traditional amount of military armaments to Egypt, or do we put, as many in the Congress suggested, uh, human rights sanctions against that, recognizing the human rights violations that are going on in that country, it was overridden, and we continued to sell the weapons. Now, I have to say, that's a circular argument because the weapons are made in the United States, so that becomes then a domestic economic thing if you're not making and selling the weapons, so it's more complicated than just are we selling airplanes to Egypt. But I think that is something to think about. Where does power lie? Where does influence lie? And President Obama was hit with an awful lot of things in once, and he made the decision with Syria you know, back in 2013, and he was opposed by his entire security apparatus, Secretary Clinton, Leon Panetta, Robert Gates, they all said, arm and assist the Syrian rebels at a time when you could tell who the Syrian rebels were. No guarantee that that would have worked. Absolutely no guarantee that that would have worked. But what we have seen is inaction is also an action. And President Obama trying not to get engaged in another war, unfortunately, you know, stuff happens, as one wise American 
leader Donald Rumsfeld once said, uh, and you then end up with, first of all, the growth of ISIS, which is now its own separate problem, and Syria completely falling apart and being example A of this division between larger powers uh, of the Middle East. So, can, can I ask you, just on that, on that very point, do you see his foreign policy in the, in the region as having been weak, or as some have described it, one of fierce minimalism? Or, or, are, there, or are those two things the same, I guess? I would encourage everyone here to read the really excellent article in The Atlantic on President Obama's foreign policy. It really helps you to understand it. I think weak is maybe too, too strong <laughs> uh, and, and unfair. Um, I think he was sincerely trying to fulfill what he saw as the mandate of the American people, which is not in to engage in another war. But you know what? People never want to engage in a war. I think if the American people were polled on the eve of D-Day, they would say, don't do that. So sometimes you just have to go beyond and make you know, kind of bigger decisions. And apparently, President Obama was advised that uh, he didn't need to intervene, uh, this is by the intelligence services, in Syria because President Assad would fall in the same way that Mubarak did. I mean, this to me reveals just a breathtaking lack of understanding of the difference between Syria and Egypt. It seems to me Syria was much more like actually the Iran Revolution of 2009, you know, with a government very willing to go in and kill its own people and just massacre them till they stopped. So the idea that, that you know, Assad might have just stepped down was so, so wrong-headed. So I think he was poorly advised, but that goes to another point. Who do we talk to? Who do we listen to? Why was everyone so surprised about the Egyptian revolution? How could anyone have thought that Assad would just step aside? Um, in Libya, Secretary Clinton talked to one apparently very winning person who persuaded her that democracy could take place in Libya. Who are we talking to? So I think there's a lack of recognition that, yes, there are these governments, and they look very stable. But underneath them is this cauldron, just boiling cauldron of social unrest. Just because they're being repressed doesn't mean it's not a boiling cauldron. And I think we have to find ways. And it's there. It's on the internet. It's not that difficult. We have to find ways to talk to and listen to a much wider range of non-government sources. Uh, and then, at the very least, whether they're weak or not, we can make more informed decisions. All right, thank you very much for that. Can, I, I know we're going to take a couple of questions in a minute, but can we just go to that? Can we just go to that point about uh, Trump and Clinton now. What, what, what are just very briefly? What are the kinds of uh, um, threats and and opportunities? I guess enunciated by those two uh, two options for the White House. Well, we certainly know that Secretary Clinton is an extremely experienced leader in international affairs and that she has a lot of good, strong relationships across the world, not just across the region. Um, and that is, that is really, really good news. We know that she is a staunch defender of Israel. I don't think that that is going to change. It's not evident that that is going to change. And, and I honestly would say that has its own peril because the kind of unmentioned element that is fueling um, extremism is, the, is Palestine. 
as we heard today from Diana here from ANU. Um, and, and so the young people who could be potentially radicalized are still talking about Palestine. So sort of staying the course, uh, backing Israel is a potentially a problematic strategy and not working really actively uh, to try to solve that just burning issue, which doesn't mean putting the Israelis in a, and Palestinians in a room and hoping something good comes of it. It's going to take a lot. Uh, that's, that's been tried. A lot more mm -hmm. than um, a lot more than that. You know, if you put a, a five-year-old in adult, I mean, I'm talking about the domination. If you put the Hungarians in a room with the Soviets in 1956, they're not going to negotiate a peace, and that's pretty much the situation you have with the Israelis and Palestinians. So I think that's what she'll do. I quite honestly am, am not sure that's going to uh, prove successful um, in the long term, but we know she is more of an interventionist than President Obama was, well, we, and she's vigorous with diplomacy, so I don't think she's going to leave the status quo um, hmm. as it is. Anyone who'd like to venture what Donald Trump would do, we learned from him today that we don't need to worry about any economic crisis. We're just going to print money. So he may have an equally brilliant, uh, thus far, untried solution for the Middle East. Professor Sarkar. I think if uh, Hillary wins the election, one possibility would be to appoint Bill Clinton as the head of the quartet to replace uh, uh, to place uh, uh, Tony Blair. And uh, that will be, uh, will have two advantages. One, that uh, Bill could uh, really focus more seriously on a possible resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. And the other thing is that will keep him away from the White House long <laughs> enough to allow um, uh, Hillary to, to be get president. on with the task of the governance. I don't think she, I think she's going to be just fine governing on her own, really. I th I'm, I'm not worried about that, but you have an interesting idea there, and I would just second that or, you know, uh, maybe suggest an alternative would be, you know, what if you put Bill Clinton in front, in charge of Israel-Palestine? He was the last person who really understood this. Yeah, he knows every street in Jerusalem. No, was, this is what I meant when I oh, said sorry, that, the, and front, that you could be the head east, of the quartet. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, but really make something happen there, because he has the trust of both sides, and he may, there are not very many people who you can say that for. So that's an interesting interesting idea. Can we, can, uh, well, I think I'm mucked up, so I'm fine. Can we go to the question of the, uh, the I guess the, the bigger, the global context of this regional foreign policy is the pivot to, by the US to this region. Um, is that something that uh, both either of you would expect to continue uh, under whoever takes over? I, I expect it will be actually, certainly if, if it's um, Secretary Clinton who becomes president, I think that will be a, something that she will want right away to get to and do uh, as vigorously as possible. I, I think that will be very important, the pivot to Asia, and actually Australia will be key. You know, Australia as our kind of anchor uh, in Asia and key to so many neighboring countries, I think, will be really key to that. Yes, well, it, is, it will be interesting because I think Trump's view is that, um, that Japan and South Korea, for example, ought to look after their own defense and uh, perhaps even do, do so with nuclear weapons if they have to. So let's hope uh, we don't uh, have to deal with that. Uh, Professor Sark, would you have a view on that? I, 
I think the. I think you're mine. Oh, I've got my good. I think I think the United States would love to get out of the Middle East, but the Middle East would not allow the United States to get out, and that is ultimately going to affect this pivot to Asia, in one form or another. The United States is not going to have all the resources in order to achieve what President Obama has envisioned in Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, of course, I mean, if Don, uh, Donald Trump wins the election, then obviously he's not really, he, uh, he, I mean, as he said, that he's going to really cut off Saudi Arabia. It's the Saudis who have to really finance everything in the region. Every conflict that they're really going to have, whether it's with Iran or whether it's in the Levant as a whole or whatever it is. But I think one thing we have to really remember uh, about uh, Trump, that at the moment he's making all these outlandish, outlandish comments uh, and policy statements in order to win the primaries. But should he really win the presidency, that office is going to have its own limitations. You've got the uh, military, you've got the bureaucracy, you've got the, the, the uh, civil society, you've got the NGOs, you've got the lobbying groups. I mean, all these things, you know, he's not going to be able to um, uh, uh, act as freely as he's been speaking during the primaries. It's a very good point, actually. Ambassador Berry was uh, here at this very university only a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. with uh, Kim Beasley, former Australian ambassador to Washington. And they were both making the point about the, I guess they were talking about it in the negative in, in this sense, the, the sort of diffuse nature of power in the American political system. But it may be something we all come to uh, be grateful for if, uh, in fact, uh, there are such checks on, um, on a President Trump were that to come about. Um, do we have any questions? We have a question uh, here. Uh, thank you very much to the, the speakers. Uh, very informative. Um, commentary that you've been giving on Middle Eastern affairs. I'm just sort of wondering whether back in 2009 when um, President Obama made his uh, statement in Cairo, whether it might have been a bit of a lost opportunity. I mean, as I said, the rise of Al-Qaeda and, um, uh, and other Islamist groups, ISIL and so forth, was really brought about by you know, American interference in uh, various Middle Eastern countries, Israel's appalling treatment of the Palestinians, and then that second invasion of Iraq, you know, combined just creating an extremely negative attitude towards um, the US and uh, being recruiting, uh, major recruiting elements for the, the rise of uh, Islamist groups. Now, understandably, um, there would have been quite a difficult domestic sort of reaction if he'd done that in 2009, but in his second term, he's had the opportunity, I think, to do that. He flagged yesterday or the day before uh, an intention to take Israel on a lot more in a much stronger fashion over the sediments. Um, you know, what do you think he really should be doing in terms of improving American standing and just limiting the capacity of Islamist groups to recruit and, and remain uh, viable forces in Syria and Iraq? Which one would like to take that? Um, well, you know, I think he hoped with the 2009 speech, I think it was a serious thing. I think he really hoped to open a new era of relations. I'm not sure you know that he really understood what that would take um, and you talk about the diffuse nature of power in American government when you know you're faced with well yes but we have contracts to sell X hundred millions of dollars of aircraft every year 
to Egypt. We have this military relationship. He's told by the Pentagon, we have to maintain this at all costs. That relates to the security of Israel. That relates to Camp David Accords. Suddenly, this nice vision, you know, really to achieve it, you've got to really break some eggs. And I think he, he wasn't uh, prepared to do that, even though his heart may have been in it, he wasn't prepared to do that. Now you talk about how you uh, combat ISIS, which and ISIL, which is of course a problem that has grown out of proportion, and you can certainly trace it back to it initially George Bush's invasion of Iraq and that country just basically falling apart. And you combine that with Syria falling apart under its own now civil war, and you have a really toxic situation which has, I think, no easy solution at all. I, you know, it's not just, let's just take those people out. There we are completely in your world with a much more than just ISIS and ISIL. We have major world powers lining up on either side, really much in the way of the Cold War. Um, I honestly don't know what is going to be, the, it's gonna have to take a whole combination of different pressures and certainly bringing Iran into the discussions is a good thing not a bad thing, but it's gonna take a whole lot of pressures way beyond just ISIS to get this problem to even slow down. I think the biggest mistake that the Obama administration made from my perspective was in 2013 when President Obama said that the Assad regime had crossed the red line and used chemical weapons and we are going to really reprimand the Assad regime and then subsequently really back down. He was basically outmaneuvered by uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, who uh, immediately came up with a, uh, some sort of a face saving for the Obama administration that the Assad regime would be prepared to, to get rid of its uh, weapons of mass destruction or chemical weapons and so forth. And then the Obama administration uh, basically dwelt on that and said, oh, we're fine, that's all great, ter ter terrific. And that also opened the door wide open for the Russians to come into yeah. Syria. That was the biggest mistake. You don't, as a leader of a world power, you don't make those sort of statements and then back down. Wasn't and it, I think wasn't that was also the case, excuse me, wasn't it also possible though that that, that had a, a flow on effect of, of getting some sort of Russian support for what the US was doing with Iran? Yeah, but I think the Russians were supportive of uh, any uh, the, uh, resolution over Iranian nuclear uh, program uh, well before that. I mean, the Russians have been really have, having had good relationship with Iran over a long period of time, even during mm. uh, Khomeini when he was alive. I mean, the, the Khomeini had advised the Iranian government to, uh, as an alternative to the relationship with the United States and uh, some of uh, America's European allies, to develop uh, good uh, uh, ties with uh, Russia, India, and China. I mean, that's, that was already uh, underway. Uh, but I think uh, that 2013 back down on the part of the Obama administration, probably when they look back at it, it's going to be one of the very important strategic mistakes what of his administration. What was wrong, the threat or not, living, not, not, uh, not delivering on the threat? Uh, not living on the threat. I mean, you don't, I, I mean, I think it is important to um, uh, make the use of the threat rather than really coming to the point that you have to apply the threat. And I think, but once he made use of it, mm. then if you back down, then I think uh, you're in deep trouble. Yes. And, and I think that really contributed to, to, the problems, uh, to the problems in the region. But let me make just one more point. Yep. And that is that at the moment, 
both of these international coalitions are very much focused, as I mean, as we're pointing out, in terms of rolling back the IS and perhaps punishing Jabhat al-Nusra and some of the other radical organizations in, in Syria and possibly also in Iraq. But the Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, Khurasan, and other radical groups, they are symptoms of much deeper problems in the region. As long as we are not able to address the very conditions which have given rise to these groups, we are not going to be able to kill these groups altogether. We are not going to be able to kill their ideologies. And we are not going to be able to prevent from similar groups replacing them in the future. And when I talk about the regional conditions, I'm talking about the blank, blanket of authoritarianism, which really covers the region. Suffocation of the populations. No uh, the, uh, safety walls for public participation in policy-making processes, policy implementation processes. Massive human rights violations. We are talking about the Islamic State's atrocities. Well, I mean, that is all condemnable, and that's all barbarian. But that's not new to the Middle East. On a, perhaps on that, not on that scale, but on a smaller scale, it's going on in the rest of the region. As long as these conditions exist, and the people are not participant in, the, the, uh, in determining the uh, destiny of their uh, nations, then I think you're always going to have these underground groups emerging, challenging the status quo. And that is what's happening now. Unless the condition change, this is likely to continue. Thank I would you just much. add quickly, those are exactly the same conditions that led to the revolutions. Mm. Yes. It's exactly the same. Well, part. that is the case, but yeah. it's also the case that once those strongmen were taken out of the, 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 the picture, that managing those expectations becomes very difficult, and we see the emergence of theocracies uh, replacing those strongmen. So it's a it's a it's a ver it's a Rubik's cube, if you know, and, and much well, more diabolical. That, that's that. what happened, of course, in in Iran. But I think what no one realized is literally the and trauma of uh, well, briefly. And now you have a general again. You know, so it, it the trauma of living under a dictator is, mm. I think, so, and and how yes. long it takes. To overcome that is never, it's not going to happen in a generation. Yes, that's very good And point. so the question is, what does that take then from the international community? Because to say, you know, what's wrong with you Egyptian revolutionaries? Why can't you get your act together and run your country? You know, that, these, these are people who've been punished, jailed, you know, mm -hmm. killed for taking any kind of in, you know, entrepreneurial step, yeah. stepping out of the line. So then how do you run your country, I think it takes a kind of support, international support system, not running the countries, but support system for that freedom to, of self-determination that, that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, that's right. And that was the great sort of neocon vanity, wasn't it? The mm -hmm. idea that you could just actually export yeah, democracy no, there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can we have a question here? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask a question about the uh, Israel and Palestinian situation. Uh, and it seems that few issues have absorbed so much diplomatic energy over the years as, as that one, partly on the belief that sometimes expressed that, that fixing it uh, will solve broader problems in the region. Um, and, and just, you know, from outside in, looking at, you know, a few million Jews on a tiny patch of land on the Mediterranean, it seems difficult to understand how they could give rise to all of these broader problems, although I can well understand how it's in the interest of some Arab governments to promote the view that both internally and ex externally that that is the source of the problem. So I guess my question to you really is, uh, 
is the strategy which we've tried uh, a few times now, I think, of putting this intractable problem uh, as almost the key and the first step in solving problems in the region uh, a plausible one? Uh, or is it really a, a bit of a red herring and something that would be better off focused on some of the other issues that you've discussed? Well, I think, again, it would be a strategic mistake not to address the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Many of these radical groups that you see in the region, they may not really believe in the Palestinian cause, but they certainly want to make use of it in order to justify their own radical actions. And also, we have to remember that not many Muslims across the world support these radical groups, or for that matter, Muslim Islamic authorities in the world support these uh, groups. But there are many Muslims that identify with the causes on which these groups rely in order to widen their circle of recruitment and circle of sympathy around the world, uh, within the Muslim world. And as long as the Palestinian problem exists, they will always draw on that. And don't forget that the Palestinian problem is not just a problem for the Palestinians. <coughs> the Arab countries may, lip, may, may pay only lip service, but also the occupation of East Jerusalem preys right into the hands of these radical groups and many other Muslims who, are, who do believe that uh, uh, East Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem is the to third holiest sites for Muslims after Mecca and Medina. Now we're getting very squeezed for time, so we'll take one more question. I believe we have one here at the front. No? So, so one, one question I had we hadn't touched on is just the use of the drone warfare program. And it might, just seems to me that it's causing more harm than good. I'm just curious the, the different thoughts on the panel on the benefits or the, are the, are the costs completely outweighing the benefits uh, to date. The question is about the use of drones, uh, the, the Obama White House uh, preference for, for, for you know, conducting an air war and using drones rather than uh, troops on the ground and taking territory and so forth. Going after terrorists, I guess, is, mm. the, uh, is the strategy. Well, I mean, they've uh, made, uh, the Obama administration made a very extensive use of drones uh, in targeting uh, uh, the radical elements uh, on the uh, Pakistani side of the border. Uh, but we also know that every time that they have taken one actual or potential terrorist out, in the process they've also killed quite a number of innocent people. Every time that that happens, it's not the individual, it's the family, it's the clan, it's the tribe. And we know the same thing is really happening in Yemen. I think while the use of drones may be the easiest means for the United States to take out a number of radical elements or the ones that they think are potentially dangerous to the Western interest. But in the process, they are also creating a lot of enemies. I think there has to be very tight regulation in support of the use of drones. And I don't see that really happening, just as I don't see a clear strategy to deal with those root causes, and I mean political strategy, to deal with those root causes of uh, extremism which defy military solutions. We put too much primacy on the use of brute force. 
but we don't have a comprehensive political strategy to deal with the root causes, and all we are dealing with is the, uh, the symptoms of the problems, the branches of the tree. We are not tackling the trunk. Professor Snyder, just quickly. No, I would, I would agree with you completely, and I think we, we just don't really know the full fallout of the drone program. It's, again, the same issue. We don't want to lose American lives. We don't want to actually have boots on the ground, but there's a cost to every step you take, and I think we don't even know yet the full cost benefit of drones, but you're absolutely right. We know the ripple effect and the people it hits, and I just want to end with, I think you make that point so well, I mean, and from an American perspective, I would come back to then, what do we stand for in this region? Because we are actually not addressing the root causes at all. And it is not a sustainable, it's just simply not sustainable. In a microcosm, Israel-Palestine isn't sustainable. The Palestinian population is ballooning, and Israel is taking over more and more of the land in the occupied territories. It's just not sustainable. But the changes that are required are so massive. And I don't think anyone is taking them on. And uh, there's really not any chance for a comprehensive solution until that begins to happen. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.